Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta, because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members, because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Greetings, greetings. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. I'm joined once again by science writer, editor, dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Oh, greetings, Bill. It's so good to be here. It's been such a long time since we've spoken. It feels so good to be speaking words. Words coming out of my mouth. They all have meaning. Sentences They were processed forming. by your brain, They're no doubt. processed by my brain. Words coming out. They're vocalizations coming from somewhere, and I don't know where it's all coming from. Bill, I'm in a spiral. You got to help me out here. Stand by. Stand by, Corey S. Powell, because today we are joined by the head of the Eric Jarvis Lab, where they do the neurobiology of vocal communication at Rockefeller University right here in New York City. Yes, we have Professor Eric Jarvis himself. Oh, thank God. Welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Eric? Yes, you can call me Eric. And thank uh, you for uh, inviting me. Just to get things started, everybody, I will read uh, Professor Jarvis's description of his work. Jarvis uses song-learning birds and other species as models to study the molecular and genetic mechanisms that underlie vocal learning, including how humans learn spoken language. He is interested in how bird brains and ours have evolved to produce this complex behavior. So, Professor Jarvis, Eric. Why why birds? I mean, don't we normally use my, I mean, we have an expression, the lab rat. A lab right. rat is kind of a thing, but you got birds. Go ahead. Right. Well, evolution does some pretty funky things. So um, most of us would expect if we're going to find something uh, informative about special behavior like language in humans, we should be looking at our closest relatives like the uh, monkeys, great apes, chimpanzees, and so forth, not birds. Well, it turns out that a certain groups of birds, like parrots, songbirds, and hummingbirds, have evolved the ability to imitate vocalizations like we do for speech, and they did so independently of our common ancestor with them. Whoa, 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 whoa. Birds got language on a, from a different evolutionary path than we did? That's right. You could say, I'm going to say now more like a spoken kind of language or a sung kind of language, that their ability to communicate with learned sounds. 
I mean, for sure, I'll just tell you as Uncle Bill, I'm no expert on this, but people learn language by imitating other people, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And you're saying you know that birds do the same thing. Yes, and, and I'm being careful here to say spoken language because we can do signed imitation with the hands, we can imitate dance movements with the body, but now this is imitation of sound, all right, that allows us to have uh, spoken language. Uh, you're I, talking not just about the, the kind of mimicry that, say, a parrot does. You're talking about birds learning from other birds? That's right. Birds learn from other birds, and they pass their repertoires on like we do for a language on from one generation to the next for thousands, for millions of years. And you get different dialects around the world, like you get different languages around the world, similar to... So, hold, so, hold on. There, I'm so going to ask d- a science question. <laughs> okay. The old question in science is, how do you know that? In experiments, you if you take a songbird or a parrot from its natural environment, from its, you know, conspecifics, its family, and raise it in isolation, uh, it will produce something different than the wild type song, all right? And it also can imitate another species sound or even human speech in some cases. Parrots are really good at this, but you can get starlings, even crows. Crows are actually a songbird. Many people don't realize that. Uh, You can get crows to actually imitate some human speech. Parrots are better. But if, if you were to take a chicken, or you take a mouse, or you take a chimpanzee and raise it separately from its peoples, if you want to call it that, uh, they will grow up producing the sounds as the rest of the, uh, their brothers and sisters and family and so forth, meaning that it's innate sounds, not learned. So you're talking about bonobos, humans, but you study zebra finches. Yes, it is like the mouse of the songbird world. It can breed within 30 days of being born. It learns how to imitate sounds over that 30 days, what takes us, you know, 10 years to do. Uh, and uh, they breed readily in captivity. Uh, so uh, it's easy to study them in a controlled in, uh, setting. So when you study them, what have we learned? Uh, we've learned that they go through critical periods of vocal learning like we do, uh, where at an early juvenile state of life, they can learn how to imitate sounds better than they could as adults. Another thing that's interesting about them that's kind of different than humans, actually it's a big difference, is that the, only the males learn how to sing and the females don't. Both, both males and females are born, you know, basically hatch with the brain circuitry for this ability, but females lose it and the males retain it. So we can see some sex differences also. In the What's the advantage of losing your ability to sing? Yeah, that's really a, was a confounding question for a long time. And the theory now is, is that uh, amongst songbirds, like amongst humans, when they evolved their singing-like speech behavior, it happened in both sexes first. And then as species started to become divergent and differentiating into different species and moving away from the equator and going into more harsh environments, it became better to divide the labor up between the sexes, where males learn how to sing sexy songs for mating, and females learn how to detect the best songs in the healthiest males and the smartest males by listening to their songs. It's a natural tendency to try to connect what you're telling me to the way humans behave, to, to the way we use language. But you also mentioned that birds evolved their language along a completely separate track. So is a bird brain really like a person's brain? How much are we learning when we're looking at how a bird... What about my old boss? Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) He had a bird brain. 
<laughs> so, right. So how much are we learning when we're looking at a, at a bird brain like Bill's old boss? Well, even the non-vocal learning species, the bird brain is actually a lot more complex and smarter than people actually think. They have a large cortical territory, like the cortex we have, except in birds, the cells are clustered like big blobs in different parts of the brain that are connected to each other. And in mammals, including humans, the cells are layered. So uh, other than that, uh, the organization is uh, more similar than people thought. So hold on, hold on. Hold on. Ba, 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 ba. If you're a human, you have a limbic system. Yes. Uh, the layered brains. Then you got a reptile brain on top of that. And then you got your sophisticated, let's do some calculus brain on top of that, right? Yeah. So, so, so you're saying a bird has bulbs or bubbles of this kind of stuff? That's right. Like, like clusters, you know, sitting next or sitting on top of each other and so forth, like multiple clusters of, of cells. Uh, and guess what? This idea that um, there's this reptilian brain in us that uh, is sitting in what we call the basal ganglion, this more you know, upper part of our brain we call the, the cortex, the noodle-like looking structure, right? There is no such thing as a reptilian brain inside of a human brain. We threw that theory out with the consortium I, I organized in the early 2000s. Uh, and the reptilian brain has some similar and different organization as the human brain, including birds. So, uh, yes, songbirds and parrots and hummingbirds being dinosaurs, being reptiles, means that all the other species of reptiles out there, particularly dinosaurs, I'm going to say dinosaurs especially, I think had the capacity to evolve vocal learning circuitry uh, to imitate sounds like we do. So it's convergent evolution then, the use That's of right. language? That's right. Uh, th which is amazing, right, that you can get convergent evolution in three bird groups independently, the songbirds, parrots, and hummingbirds, but also five mammal groups, us humans, bats, the whales and dolphins, the seals and sea lions, those are called pinnipeds, uh, and elephants. I and some other scientists think that we humans evolve spoken language in a similar way as these birds did. First, for mom and dad to like each other, okay? Mm -hmm. To communicate, you know, let's say love songs, if you want to call it that. And then secondarily, after after hundreds of thousands to millions of years of that kind of communication. Then came uh, the abstract kind of communication we're doing now that some dolphins do and that parrots do, but not all vocal learners. Abstract no. communication. So abstract beyond sex. That's uh, Eric, you, you have some wonderful recordings. I think it'd be great to actually hear a little bit. Maybe you can tell us what we're, what we're hearing after we listen. Go right ahead. That was the male zebrafinch uh, producing uh, his song. Uh, and and what's, he, what's he talking about? Um, in this case, he's trying to woo a new mom and uh, to uh, either uh, mate with him or uh, if he's doing it alone, he's practicing it like we practice in the shower to try to perf perfect the song. So when that time comes for wooing, he'll do a per perfect version of the imitated song. Or do it, yeah, really well. So do it really well. That's right. Literally, a chick will dig it. That's right. So, so we call this directed song when he's producing that song, you know, to to a female. 
We call it undirected song when he's practicing by himself, which is, which he will do a lot alone. Undirected and, and song. And there are regional dialects to Zebra Finch? Yes, there are dialects. There are dialects to Zebra Finch and there are dialects to other birds. And the, the amazing thing is that amongst primates, uh, like us humans and great apes and monkeys and so forth, there's only one vocal learner, and that is humans. Amongst the birds, right, there are 3,000 vocal learners, and they're this, out of the 10,000 species. So, right? Wow. Yeah. All right. So let me ask you this. Let's say our brains are surprisingly similar. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Are our larynxes, our voice boxes so similar? No. So, so uh, actually, I think the brain circuitry for the behavior is more similar than the actual muscles that control the sounds. So we use something called a larynx in mammals, and birds use something called a syrinx. Uh, and they're both being used to produce learned sounds. So we have a unique larynx, a bonobo, chimpanzee, great ape. They, they have a larynx, but not the, of the same sophistication. Um, so there used to be this thought that, uh, or theory that the reason why humans have greater capacity for learning novel sounds is because in us, the larynx has descended in the windpipe, in the, in the vocal tract. It's, it's gone lower. By having this extra space between the tongue and the larynx, theoretically, we can produce more sounds. Well, that's now been falsified. Uh, How do you falsify such a hypothesis? You blow air through a uh, monkey larynx, and you can produce a lot of different sounds as you get out of a human larynx. Wow. Okay. You're just raising a whole other set of questions, you know. <laughs> so hang on. Let's, let me roll this voicemail. Let's try this. Hey there, Bill. This is Rue from Las Vegas. I was just wondering if I could ask you about the evolution of speech. Um, I know that there's a lot of research that suggests that the hyoid bone in the throat is the reason that uh, humans are able to produce speech and that finding this hyoid bone in older skeletons is really important in order to date when human speech began. I was just wondering if there's been any recent research that talks about, you know, any any timeline as far as when the evolution of speech could have begun based on the hyoid bone or any other research. The hyoid bone. Tell us about okay, the hyoid Dr. Jarvis, bone. The hyoid bone. Right. Okay. Well, the hyoid bone is important. Uh, it's 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 you know at the upper part of the larynx, right? And it is important uh, for speech, uh, but it's important for sounds in general, and. Uh, uh, no, th- this is not the major difference. What, what, what she heard is, is true. People have said that. But when you look at the experimental evidence and you look across different mammalian species, you find other species c- showing convergence with our larynx, hyoid type of structure, but cannot do the vocal learning that we do. The main difference is in the brain. Aha. Uh-huh. So everybody, the hyoid bone, for you hyoid bone buffs, and I know you're out there, mm-hmm. It is the only bone that's not connected or doesn't interact directly with another bone, right? We just have this thing. Right. That, that you know, some say evolved in the last 100,000 years. That's so but, recent. Yeah, that is kind of recent. Uh, and I don't think, I mean, I think the evidence indicates that language, spoken language, vocal learning in its most simplest forms evolved in humans well before that. There's also been some talk about a, a genetic 
switch that that flipped at some point. Yes. Thing, uh, like a, a th- the Fox P2 gene. Fox P2 gene, which we've and People studied. have talked about that, like, oh, that's the thing that made us from not being able to speak to speak. Is there any truth to that one? Or is this another, uh, these science urban legends? Um, there's some truth, but I don't think it's just that one switch. So uh, uh, students in my lab, what we found is that um, in the songbird brain, the parrot brain, the human brain, the specialized brain regions that control spoken language has evolved genetic changes for about 50 to 100 genes, depending on the brain region, not just one, 50 to 100 of them, okay, depending on the brain region. We're looking to see if there's any master regulator that says one gene turns on all the others in a different way. Uh-huh. Now, that, we're looking for that. We don't have that answer yet to whether you know, it's multiple genetic changes independently or one that's a master regulator. But FOXP2 is not it. Stick around for more science rules after this. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Science Rules is back. So it sounds like in your lab, you do genetic sequencing, mm-hmm. and it sounds like you must take a lot of brains apart. Yes. All right. And then, do you do an MRI on a zebra finch? No. Uh, we, let's say this. We do what uh, people donate their brains to science, like uh, post-mortem uh, brain tissue. That's how we get our human brains. We also collect the zebra finch brains as well uh, to analyze uh, their brain circuitry and the genes inside of, of, of their circuits that control vocal learning and singing. So for a long time, when I would look at a textbook of a human brain or whatever, there'd be this thing called the speech center. Yep. Is there such a thing in birds or is it a bunch of centers distributed? Yeah, uh, it's a bunch of centers distributed. So we don't call it a center now, we call it a network. It's a network of centers. And so b- kids, babies, people before they're eight years old, have all these extra brain connections that somehow go away. Is that related to why people who learn languages, uh, multiple languages as kids can speak without accent, can understand the different grammar and so on, but then when you get older, it's all brittle and a waste of your freaking exhausting. <laughs> but what, what, what happens is that only humans, and I'm going to call them the advanced vocal learners, have these clear speech networks. And uh, as they become adults and they're learning how to imitate sounds, you know, go through their critical periods, what happens is that 
the connections become more stable. You can't change them. So it's hard to learn something new. Uh, Not brittle and old and useless. No, no, <laughs> no stable. More stable. We're becoming more and more stable right. every day, I'm Bill. I'm getting stabilated. Boy, by, by, that's by the, right. By the time I'm dead, I'm going to be like a solid rock. Right. <laughs> but why, why I think, this is, I think is the, this is the case is because the opposite of stability, we call it plasticity, okay, in the brain world. So when you're too, your brain remains in this plastic state for the, if for the rest of your life, it does that. Yeah, you'll keep re- learning new languages easily without accents, but you also keep forgetting. So, uh-huh. you, so the reason why you got to stabilize the circuit right. is so you don't forget what you've learned. Bill, wow, this is a great time to go to another voicemail because we have another great caller. Hey, Bill and Corey, this is Joey from Southern California. I have a newborn daughter in the house, and she's learning new sounds and language at this time. And my question is, does she already know at two months the same amount of language that our prehistoric ancestors did? I imagine that she can have a full-blown conversations with them. Thanks. I appreciate it. Bye. Two-month-old modern human compared with speaking with some pre-Neanderthal person. So the first thing is that um, we learn the meaning of sounds before we learn how to produce them. Whether it's two months and you're hearing speech and you're learning new sounds about speech or two years and you're actually producing it, uh, in both cases, right, I think that um, our capacity to do that has not changed uh, dramatically from our prehistoric answers. That is before written history. Uh, Whether it be 100,000, 200,000, I'm going to even venture back 500,000 years ago or more with Neanderthals. Uh, I don't think our capacity has changed that dramatically. What has changed is the culture, the amount of information we, we take in, but not the actual capacity. And the reason why I say that is because we do now have the ability to sequence the genetic material, the genomes of these ancient human uh, uh, that go back those many hundreds of thousands of years, and their genetic material is not that different from us today. So was there a turning point? You know, the guy... Just I'm of a certain age. The guy that was such a big doggone deal was Noam Chomsky. Was there a turning point, a moment when humans started to talk and nobody else did? By that, yes, I mean so, other. So, uh, and, I, and I've, I've discussed, I met Noam Chomsky once and had some emails. He got to meet you, okay? Yes. Okay, he got to meet. Okay, I'll, I'll take that uh, compliment. Uh, so, um, uh, and, you know, discuss this with him and others that he has trained. I don't think. Uh, unlike what he's suggesting, I don't think there was a sudden switch in one or two genes that just suddenly occurred and then you have full-blown uh, human spoken language. I think it was gradual uh, uh, I, and, and more like a step fashion and a, con- a continuum, but each time a change occurs, it occurs in a big step and then another big step and another big step. Uh, and how do, how do you determine that we're looking at other species of animals. We're sequencing a bunch of genomes of all these different vertebrate species, those who can learn, those who can't, those who can keep learning as adults like we do, even though they do less like we do, those like the zebra finch who only learn one song in their life and can't learn anything new. And we're trying to figure out the genetic steps that led to like what we can do. You mentioned earlier these different dialects that zebra finches or other birds have. Would a zebra finch from one part of the world have trouble understanding a zebra finch from another part of the world? Is yes. it that different? Yes. Uh, 
I, and I'm going to even uh, further venture, this would be the case in species that have bigger repertoires that can learn more like we do, like a starling or a parrot. They'll, they'll just be totally, it's like a different language. We humans, we, we think we know so much about each other, but you, you go to another country uh, and hear a language you never heard of before, where you don't even know how to say, where's the bathroom, right, in that other language, it sounds totally foreign to you. Well, this could happen to birds as well, yeah. from one part of the world to another. Mm. So here's another question about taking a word or an ex- idea or an expression, maybe not being able to vocalize it. So can we roll this digital recording? Hi, my name is um, 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 Emily Anderson, and I'm a person that's, that's, that stutters. And my question is about the, ev- the, e- the evolution of speech. I'm wondering what a common belief that our ancestors believed that caused speech speech impediments and how far back do knowledge on speech impediments go? Thank you. Very good question. Um, Actually, what's interesting is that some of the genetic uh, causes of speech impediments, we can recapitulate that in these vocal learning birds. So hold it, hold it. You're saying it's genetic? Stuttering part, part, is genetic? Part, a lot of what occurs in stuttering is genetic or, or an injury to the brain at a particular early age or wow. later in life. Yeah, Because I've we, known people, who, well, heck, the guy running for president, Joe Biden, overcomes his stuttering. I've known right. a lot of, over the years. I've met many people who stutter sometimes and other times not at all. Yeah, so that's right. Through speech therapy, other kinds of therapy, uh, just like uh, when you have an injury to a muscle, if you have some type of uh, injury or, or genetic you know, predisposition in the brain, you can practice to get over that. We actually have been able to cause songbirds to stutter. Uh, How do we do that? <laughs> no, it's a certain part of the brain called the uh, striatum or the basal ganglia. Uh, when damaged in humans, causes Parkinson's disease and also stuttering. Uh, huh. And, uh, and, and some Parkinson's patients also have stuttering. And so we, we found that when damage occurs to that same area of the brain in songbirds, they, they start to stutter, particularly when uh, new neurons come in to try to repair it. And what happens in these songbirds, unlike humans, is that they are better at generating new neurons to repair a brain circuit, and their repair of the stuttering can go away faster than what happens in humans. By developing, what did they develop? new neural pathways through their existing, getting around an injury or a uh, genetic disposition? The answer to that is not known if they're really developing new neural pathways, but if it is like we're seeing in the birds, the answer would be yes in terms of either not you know new neurons in the pathway or uh, changing the circuitry. Yeah. Changing how route. things are connected yeah. Yeah, by you know, rerouting basically connections by mm-hmm. practicing. By practicing. To, oh, by practicing. Wow. So, so does that point to new ways to treat or to understand stuttering? Yes, it does. Because uh, we could figure out, okay, what kind of practicing in these birds leads to certain circuits to change in better ways than others. And, and a lot of the stuttering is a mismatch between what you hear and what you say. Uh-huh. Uh, the timing, yes. the timing yes. between the two is uh, affected. And this basal ganglia circuitry I told you about that the songbird has uh, is responsible in part for that timing. God, what a great question. Okay, so that leads me to a couple more things. First of all, stuttering is clearly not an evolutionary dead end. 
I mean, people, no. the world is full of stuttering people for crying out right. loud, and we all get by, right? Right. But the other thing, is there some way, is there something that would enable a person to learn another language or learn to sing or learn to sing in tune uh, with practice because you develop these neural pathways like a bird? Well, funny you should ask. Um, uh, we, we have two projects, uh, one that I just got funded, one I'm still trying to get funded. I'll just say the one I'm trying to get funded still, is that we have genes that I told you this critical period, like when we go from being uh, you know, 10, 12 years old to becoming an adult, that, that, that pu- after puberty, it's hard for us to learn a new language. Okay, Same thing in these birds. Uh, and we see, we see uh, uh, the protein products of many genes change in the brain as a result. Can we stop that change or reopen the critical period for a few months or for a year, okay, and with some drugs that you take, uh, and get the brain to learn a new language and then stop taking the drugs so you don't forget it? Uh-huh. Oh, wow. You open the, you open the door and then you shut it quickly enough that that's it right. stays. That's right. Wow. This is, this is the thing that I like to do. Uh, that's one I'm trying to get funded. The one we just got funded is... Like I told you earlier, uh, these speech circuits in humans, song circuits in birds have these genetic changes of about 50 to 100 genes. Um, we now got some funding from the NIH to actually take the human version of those genes and put them in a mouse brain. And, and we see, can do that. We can put human genes in a mouse brain. We can put human Stay genes in office. a mouse brain. Yeah. Yes. And people have done that before my lab has. Yes, we can do that. And, uh, and, but no one's put 100 genes. You know, that's the hard part. It's one or two at a time, yes, but 100. Uh, and put it in the mouse brain and try to see if we can in- induce the mouse vocal circuitry to become more like a songbird or more like a human and imitate. And if that is true, then we can figure out ways how to repair those circuits as well. Wow. Well, what would a humanized mouse vocalization be like? Would it just be more flexible? Or I presume it's not a mouse saying, hello there. <laughs> Uh, not really, because there there are limitations on the larynx, as we were talking about. Right, earlier. Sorry, like be but there. yes, th- that's right. Yeah. That would be one thing. Is that the, it's a much smaller larynx, so the frequencies of the vocalizations are much higher uh, in ranges that we can't even hear. But you uh, can record them, right? Uh, but we can the record them, yes, with uh, microphones that detect ultrasonic sounds. Wow! P- plus, they they produce a lot syllables at a lot faster rate than we do. So they're, oh, they're speech-like, well, if we were to able, let's call it song or whatever it would be, it would be much, much faster. We would have to slow it down to understand it. I happen to know something about you that you were quite interested in dance. I think you were even considering a career in dance early on. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. So, uh, so I was, before I went into science, yes, yeah, so I was at the High School of Performing Arts, uh, Joffrey Ballet School here in New York, Alvin Ailey as well. Wow. Oh, you were wow. serious. And at, at the schools there, and I and I did have an opportunity to audition for the one of the companies as well. Uh, so so it wasn't like I switched to science because you know uh, I didn't think I could not succeed in dance. Uh, although I won't say I was the greatest. No, I wasn't. Uh, but yes, I, I I switched to science, and um, but I found there was a lot of overlap between the two and how things work uh, in terms of you know career goals. You know, being a scientist is like being an artist, uh, like being a dancer, but more recently, I came full circle uh, because we discovered, when I say we, I mean the community of scientists discovered that only the vocal learning species can learn how to dance. Whoa. Whoa. What about bees? They've got their the, the indicator the 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 or the nectar is with respect to the sun. 
Let me clarify that. Okay. The word dance is a big word. Or yes, that's right. Things. So bees yeah. do do these dances, even courtship dances and so forth, for dances to indicate where food is located. But the dance that I'm talking about is dancing to sound. Okay? Uh-huh. Oh, voilà. Yes. Yes. How cool. And dancing rhythmically to the beat of the, of the rhythm of, of the sound. And so, so vocal learners can, especially humans and parrots, and, I, and parrots have an extra vocal learning pathway like humans do, that I didn't get into yet. But um, they, we have the ability to synchronize our body movements to rhythmic uh, beat in music. And dogs can't do this. Non-human primates, monkeys can't do this. You might get a, a monkey uh, to tap its finger to every beat, but not to move to the downbeat. Uh-huh. But all of these vocal learning birds, these, I forget what you said, thousands of species, that those birds can all more or less keep a beat? Yeah, so, so, so it's one, we call them orders, like there's one primate order, so there's hundreds of monkeys, right? So yeah, we're order like a genus, species, That's class. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So you got the chickens? No, they can't. You got the songbirds? They can, and there are a lot of them, a lot of songbirds. So what what what's happened there? Yes, they they are the ones who can do this. And so what what I think is going on here is as follows: We found, and when I say we, my lab has found that the brain centers for humans and songbirds and parrots and other vocal learners is embedded in circuitry that controls learning how to move. Okay. And what we think happened is that when vocal learning pathways for speech evolved in humans and birds, it evolved by a whole brain pathway duplication of this motor learning circuit. So why did it duplicate? It seems like it would take a lot of energy and effort. And I, I an think this is actually happening naturally. I, I think like gene duplications, you're getting brain pathway duplication. And this new duplication gets connected to the organs that control sound. Wow. Once you connect that motor learning circuit to the organs, the larynx that controls the sound, the jaw, the tongue, and so forth, now you need to integrate that sound with this new, this new speech circuitry through the ear. And uh, it turns out that the larynx is the fastest firing muscles in the body, right? So you need wow. really good rapid integration of sound with muscle movement to get speech or to get song in these birds. And what I think happened is once that happened in songbirds, parrots, and humans, okay, that integration of hearing and movement contaminated the rest of the motor pathway. Contaminated. You heard contaminated. that, contaminated. contaminated. Yes. <clears throat> Dance is contamination. That's right. That, that <laughs> contamination led us to now synchronize our bodies, to not just the larynx, to the movement of sound. Science Rules will be right back. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. You're listening to Science Rules. Let's talk about you. You're going to uh, audition for Alvin Ailey. That's like a big doggone deal. Tell us about what that was like and your experience um, 
as an underrepresented minority scientist? Is that an accurate way of saying it? That, that's an accurate way of, of classifying it, yes. Especially in this day and age, I think this is an important topic uh, with the current civil unrest and Black Lives Matter, yes. So, so to get at your question, you know, uh, what, what was that transition, both as a dancer and as an underrepresented minority? Uh, my mother raised me to do something good for society, to have a positive impact. Uh, and when I was a high school student, I fell in love with dance, but I also fell in love with science. And when I was trying to make that decision of what to do for my career, for my life, it was really focused on what can I do that would have a positive impact on society. And yes, on the one hand, I had this opportunity, this offer to being asked to audition for the Alvinelli First Level Dance Company. And I had this other opportunity to go to college uh, as a scientist. And I wasn't the greatest student, academic student, but I, I had the will. Uh, and I decided I, can, I feel that I can do better to make a positive impact on society as a scientist than I could as a dancer. And it was, that was my decision at 18 years old. So do you feel that uh, it must, come on, it must have one thing led to another. The same thing that enabled you to dance at this pretty high level and then do this research on the connection between sounds, hearing, speech, and physical movement. You're, I mean, you're destined to be doing this gig, man. This is so cool. If, if you can consider destiny exists, that, then that, this will be a case example, yes. Yeah. Uh, destiny may <laughs> but, be the wrong term, but you right, took yes. advantage of the hand yes. you were dealt. My That's goodness. Right. That's right. And, and then to, to that, that, the second part of the hand that I was dealt, you know, being an underrepresented minority, uh, and really uh, more recently, you know, when I got my own genome sequenced, and like many people around the world, we're a lot more mixed than we realize, but nevertheless— I was treated, you know, as a person of color, African-American, and I had lots of experience of discrimination, either overtly or, you know, covertly, uh, and, and discovered that, um, you know, there have been, a, there have been a, a lot of firsts that I've done that I wasn't trying to do. The first African-American professor at Rockefeller, the second at Duke University. The first you were the second African-American professor at Duke? Duke University Medical Center in the basic sciences. That's right. And I only discovered that after like four or five years there, I was there when there was a lacrosse case, you know, where... Uh, oh, man. It's all a right. Team, we all remember know, that. The dean called, the dean of medical school called all the African-American faculty together. There were about 12 of us, all of them in, introducing themselves, all saying them, they're a physician in this department, in this department. And two of us were scientists. And I said, where are the rest of the scientists? And the other physicians started laughing, saying, you are it. Yeah. Wow, so. man. So those, those kinds of things, you know, on the one hand, I feel like I'm, I should be proud, okay, that I'm pioneering something for people of my ethnicity. On the other hand, it's, it's a lonely place. It's something that shouldn't happen. And my experiences are different. Uh, and, that, and I just come to accept that. You know, I've, I feel like in one way, I don't fit in the the, let's say, the Caucasian, European, Western-focused world in academia, I feel different. I feel like a foreigner. And in my own family, in some ways, I also feel like a foreigner because uh, they can't understand how I adopt to that world. So let me ask you this. I don't know if you heard about it, but there's a big uh, pandemic going on. Are you doing something in your lab that's COVID-related? Uh, uh, we have my neuroscience lab that we're talking about all about the brain and vocal learning. But we also have a genomics lab uh, run by a colleague of mine and myself, Olivier Rodrigo. And um, in that genomics lab, 
our major mission is to run and contribute to a project I'm leading to sequence the genomes of all vertebrate species on the planet, uh, which is a big order, 70,000 species. We don't have the money for it all, but we have the mission. Because of this, uh, we're now um, sequencing the genomes of species that don't get sick, that just take, take up the virus, keep it in their blood system or in their cells, and go along their lives just fine. Those are the bats, particularly horseshoe bats that uh, has uh, viruses in it that has the closest genomic sequence to the virus as an infected humans. So we want to try to figure out how come these bats and some other species, pangolins and so forth, can be resistant to the virus, you know, get infected but never get sick, okay? Uh, Mm -hmm. And how come humans, most humans, not all, you know, get get infected and get really sick or at least get a fever? And so... um, so we're trying to find out what genetically happened in these bats. And then could you then get drugs that will try to recapitulate that genetic difference in humans? I have a very practical question for you. You presumably have a lab full of zebra finches and other animals fluttering around. How are you going in and taking care of them while everything was in COVID shutdown? What happened to your lab? Oh, that that's a good question. So um, the first thing we stopped doing and we were asked to stop doing it is uh, having them breed with each other so that more animals are born during the shutdown. Otherwise, you have to have more people take care of it, right? Take care of them. But we do have people who have to go in, in my lab, and also the animal caretakers in the university, who have to go take care of the animals every single day and feed them, right? And the way that is done is we make sure that no two people are in the same room at the same time. Yeah. And you make sure that the people who are going to take care of the animals are COVID-free. So they don't pass it to the animals right. who will then pass it to yeah, other yeah, humans yeah. who are taking care of them. It's complicated science. Wait, but Bill, what is that sound? <laughs> well, I is believe it... it's a, a thunderstorm, Corey. Oh, no, no, no. You're, if you're hearing thunder, what's happening is lightning. That's right. It's time, Corey. It's the lightning round. It's not yes. the thunder round. It's the lightning round. That's right. Dr. Jarvis, which bird has the best song? The budgerigar or parakeet. What is the best part of your job? Discovering new things and training people. Training people. What's the worst part of your job? Raising money. What is the most interest? Is there a most interesting fact about birds that you wish everybody knew? How smart they are and their ability to communicate. Oh, wow. Now, if you could pick one scientist, living or dead, that you'd want to work with, maybe do a research project with, who would that be? It would be Charles Darwin or Marie Curie. So if you weren't studying birds, what would you be doing? I'd be um, trying to understand how human human civilization evolved. Wow, not bad. I, I, I I want to add a question of my own. If you could bring back one species from the dead, what species would you bring back? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about the auk, the bird that was recently wiped out on some islands in the North Atlantic. I always wondered about that. Man. Right. I I would bring back the closest relative of parrots. Which is what? Which is a species um, um, are related to falcons and giant terror birds that used to roam the South American continent. Wow. How cool. Terror birds. You guys, we can see him through the magic of, uh, it's not magic, the technology of modern calling. He's it's, just it's grinning science. Ear, ear to ear. Oh, it's fantastic. Yes. All right. Our guest today, 
has been Dr. Eric Jarvis. And he, as you know, heads the Eric Jarvis Laboratory at Rockefeller University here in New York City. Eric, thank you so much for joining us to talk about birds and what they can teach us about speech and our ear-to-mouth coordination. You're welcome. Remember, when it comes to the birdie world of language and our own world of language, science Science rules. To find out uh, more about our upcoming guests, and I know you want to find out, check me out on the electric internet. And if you like Science Rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out. It helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785, 201-472-0785, or submit a question to askbillnye.com. Thank you so much. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and our own Corey S. Powell. Oh, hey, that's me. Casey Alford mixed this episode and composed <laughs> our original theme. Josephine Martorana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer, the CCO here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Science Rules. Science Rules. 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 Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply.